This is Darrell Alia, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 63. Guys, we're getting straight to the meat and potatoes of this episode. This is a learning episode, guys. So no pre-roll, no tip of the week. In a case study format, we're laying out the A to Z steps of your first triplex purchase. Now, let me get my theme music. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobsher, the Cashflow Ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. Sunny, as you know, this is, I mean, man, this is a year, a year in the game. Like we, we haven't talked for a whole year. Yeah, man. Your life has drastically changed. My life has drastically changed. You've bought like this amazing triplex and you're traveling the world. You're still, you're still being you, you're still being frugal, but you're doing it awesomely. And you know, we're in a position now to where it's a year later. And as I mentioned on our, our, our very first show, so before the com slash episode one, episode one, <laughs> number one. <laughs> Slash episode one, we, we we got to know each other and we literally walked through your path. We walked down your Before the Million story. It was amazing. And you inspire so many people. Till this day, Sonny, I get so many emails and I get so many comments about how that episode has been so amazing in people's lives, how it's helped people start their real estate investing journey, so on and so forth. And I don't know if you get some of those as well, but I know that I've been getting those and it's like, man, like, Episode one was amazing. So why not? Why not have him back on? Why not Sunny, the very first person we ever bring back on the Before the Millions podcast? And here we are, Sunny. How's it going? Wow, another first. I am. I am truly humbled and uh, <laughs> grateful to to have another first on the Before the Millions podcast. That's awesome. Uh, life's good, busy, but awesome. <laughs> Maybe let's maybe give the listeners like a quick rundown of what's been going on for the past year. I mean, if they want to listen to what happened the year before, so 2017, 2016, 2015, they can listen to before the slash episode one. But since then, Sonny, what's been going on in your life? And it doesn't have to be all real estate, just kind of who, who have you been? I mean, what's been going on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so life's been pretty interesting. You know, I had a lot of passive income things going back when we talked last a year ago. I've since kind of not put my focus there, but more on my career. You know, I work for the Department of Defense as an engineer, mechanical engineer. You know, I've been focusing pretty heavily on my career. I was doing a six-month developmental rotation under pretty much the the director of my organization. He he manages three thousand people, and you know, I was working for him, doing a lot of his events, and just being with him on a day-to-day basis, kind of talking with him, and uh, you know, meeting generals and admirals with him. 
And it's been, it's been a really cool experience meeting all these high level folks and really loved it. And also I just got a promotion. You know, I was making probably a year ago, like 83K. Now I'm making 99.9K, almost six <laughs> figures. They didn't want to give me the six figure mark, but pr- let's just say it's six figures. Yeah. And life's been pretty good. We also closed on that triplex. So we now have two properties back before we bought a four family back in 2015. And last August in 2017, we uh, finally closed on that triplex we were under contract with during episode one. So now we have two properties and yeah, gross rents there are also going to be a hundred K a year. So, you know, we have a six figure salary for me and then a six figure passive gross rental income for them for those two properties. So it's kind of cool. Two, two prop- six. Yeah. From just from two, two properties. So yeah. you can debunk any myth out there right now that somebody tells you, you have to go buy 20 single family homes to finally get to, you know, your, your freedom number. Sunny, you've done it with two properties. I mean, that, that, you know, that's so commendable. And I can't wait to talk about the second property because that's the bulk of what we're going to talk about in this episode and your triplex deal and how you, you, you found it, how you financed it, how you rehabbed it, so on and so forth. We're going to talk about all of that, but I just want to take a moment to, to kind of, to kind of soak that in two properties are grossing over $100,000. So let's just, let's just take the typical individual and if they had those two properties without your DOD job, I mean, they, they could live pretty comfortably, wouldn't you say? Yeah, especially given, you know, this is 100000 in gross rent coming in while we live in one of the units for free. So we essentially, we have no housing expense on top of $100,000 in gross rent coming in. You know, so a lot of people are, you know, have their $2,000 a month apartment and they got to pay that. We got to pay nothing. And we have a hundred thousand in rent coming in from these two house hacks that we did. So yes, we can essentially retire just now. I can quit my job and I could retire, you know, and you know, we, we did the calculations right now, you know, we, we do have to pay mortgages and things like that still. If those were gone, you know, just so just factoring expenses, maintenance, vacancy, things like that, you know, that would total around like $40,000 expense. So really, realistically, we'd have $60,000 left over as profit, you know, if the mortgage was gone. So, so yeah, you know, we did, we do have 30 year mortgages, but I calculated, you know, if I put, if I put all my money down back, this was back when I had my $83,000 salary, I was calculating around 12 years, we'd have everything paid off and then, you know, everything paid off and we'd have 60,000 a year, you know, in, in profit from rental money, as well as living for free, you know, and who everyone could live off that, you know, and especially us, we're so frugal, we wouldn't be close to spending 60k. So we'd be banking money, we'd still probably still be maxing out Roth IRAs and things like that. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. And you know, I feel like, yeah, I, I do want to debunk it because, you know, we live 15 minutes from New York City and people, people are like, you know, when you live in New Jersey, New York City, or California, they're all like, you can't, you can't make it work. But you know, I really feel like you can make it work. And, you know, I didn't have any real estate background. I didn't have any family that was in real estate, you know, and, you know, I didn't have like a huge inheritance or any inheritance at all. You know, my dad didn't even pay for my college. I had to pay for college myself. Okay, he did pay $300. He gave me $300 to start. It's like, I'm going to pay your entrance fee, but everything else you got to cover. He told me that all growing up, so I knew that was happening. But he did pay me $300, his blessing, I guess. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a lot of things. And so I just feel like, you know, you can really make this work. You know, we had a six-month-old at the time when we bought that first property back in 2015. So, they, you know, odds were not in our favor, but we made this work, and I think... Yeah, it's just been a cool journey. 
That's that's amazing. That's amazing. And I know the listeners are itching to get into this. And, you know, how can you walk us from A to Z through the purchase of a property? And this is going to be your second property that we're going to talk about. But this can apply to so many people and so many people, so many people's lives and buying their first investment property, because that's our goal right now. I want so many people who are listening to this podcast, who are on this line to purchase their first investment property here in 2018. And you've laid out what's, by the way, plug your blog post really quick so that people can, you know, if they're, if they're listening now, they can follow along and kind of see what we're talking about. And, you know, you've detailed detailed day by day how you were able to close on this property, you know, how you were able to rehab this property, that you've detailed your thoughts, your emotions, you've detailed <laughs> that thing, you have like the text messages in there. I mean, you have, you have forms in there. Like you, you put, you put it all out there and you know, it's one of those things to where really I'm looking at your pre-approval letter right now. I'm looking at your Craigslist posting. I'm looking at your analysis. So what, what's, what's the link to, to your blog post so, so that the listeners, if, if they want to start following along as we get into this, they can follow along. Sure. So my blog is FamVestor. So it's like family investor, but fam, F-A-M, Vestor, V-E-S-T-O-R.com. And then my specific post is famvestor.com slash triplex case study. Triplex case study. And uh, yeah, so, so, so what's interesting, so we bought that first four family property right off the MLS. So, you know, no hidden secrets. Everyone can see the MLS and we, we were able to buy that. And then triplex also, you know, there was nothing hidden. We didn't do any weird tricks. It, we found it on Craigslist, actually. Maybe that is a weird trick. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to dive deep into this. You know, it is a huge blog post, but, you know, I really wanted to, you know, show people the ropes, you know, people who had never gotten started, show them step by step, remove all the fear. You know, if you know the whole process, just use this as a template for yourself, you know, go through the exact same steps, go get your, you know, pre-approval and just get follow this step by step, you know, and I, and I want to, I'm excited to walk with you through this whole process. I am too. And you know, you, you, you've just debunked another myth. So you're meaning to tell me that you didn't get this deal from an off-market realtor? Nope. No wholesaler came to me, nothing. It was just, <laughs> it was all online. Just like that first property, it was just on the MLS, you know, you know, and now we're getting great cash flows from both these two properties that were available to anyone. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I want to, I want to touch on the point that it sounds like it really just boils down to a decision. Most people, they put, they put these barriers in front of their first investment property. They say, well, I heard that I should get my real estate license. And once I get my real estate license, I'll be able to get my first investment property. Or let me finish this project. Or let me do this. Let me clean up my desk area. And then I'll be more organized. And my, my mind will be clear. And then I'll get, like, the root cause of all of that is not because you need all those things, but more so fear. And the best way to get over fear is to kind of just jump right in. Yeah. So how we want to jump right in is maybe kind of look at our finances, look at where we are and see what options are available to us as far as a pre-approval. So let's talk about, you know, let's start from the very first step. Let's talk about the very first thing you did. Did you go out and find this property first or did you go and get your pre-approval first? What was the first thing that you did so that you can close on this triplex? Yeah. So the first thing we did was to get that pre-approval because a lot of times, you know, people don't even want to show you the property if they, if they don't know you're pre-approved, you know, you're just some joker knocking on doors. So I don't know. I, I think it's a good idea to get the pre-approval, especially since we weren't working with a realtor. 
we were just going ourselves, calling listings, listing agents. You know, uh, I like to do this trick because I feel like, you know, if you call the listing agent, use them as your realtor. Listing agents, the people who made the listing for the property. If you call them directly and have them show you the property and if you buy it, they'll get double the commission they normally would. They get the buyer's commission and the seller's commission. So that's in their best incentive to have you close on that deal. So I really like that method and that's what we did. And I also don't like being pressured by realtors showing us and working with their schedule. So that's, that was my rationale. That's why I wanted the pre-approval. And I think in general, it's just a good idea to have it. I love that so much. And that's another nugget for you guys. If you are going, if you are confident in your, in your skills, if you're confident when you, when it comes to analyzing, when it comes to due diligence, then there's almost no reason to have a, a buyer's agent. I mean, it, it bodes so much better for you to go straight to the seller's agent and figure out, you know, work with that person because you're giving them a double commission. They're getting paid double to be able to work for both sides. And it's one of those things to where they're going to go to bat for you, you know, more than they may go to bat for another, another buyer that has, a, uh, that has a, a buyer's agent because they know that they're only going to make half. So just another little nugget. So the first thing that we should do, Sonny, it sounds like we should get our pre-approval. Do you have any recommendations as far as what we need, how we need to prepare for that conversation with the lender or what lenders we need to go out, what type of lender we need to go out and look for? Or is it just kind of find somebody in your local area or go to your banks, maybe start with your bank, the person, the people that you bank with and start there? Or is it better to go to community banks? What's your recommendation as far as getting your pre-approval? For me personally, I use a local, well, they're not even local. They have a couple different branches in different states, but it's primarily just New Jersey, Florida, New York, uh, Massachusetts, but Trusco Bank, that's who I use. And I only use them because they're a little different that most most banks seem like they want for, um, well, it depends. it depends what kind of loan you're getting, but I was trying to get a conventional loan and most banks seem to want to have you put a larger down payment for a three or four family house like put 20%, 25% down. And my bank, this Trusco bank, the smaller bank, would let you just put like 10% down. So that's a lot more attractive to me. So that's why I went through that local bank. But, you know, ask, ask the bank you frequent, you know. And a lot of, a lot of places uh, offer FHA programs so that you just put 3.5% down. And a lot of those programs allow you to get uh, four family units, up to four family units. And that's what I'm targeting, three to four family units, because that's where the cash flow really seems to be in my area. We have such high property taxes that you need that three or four family property to really you know, have one of the units pay for the property tax, one of the units pay for the mortgage and the other two to help cash flow after, you know, a maintenance and uh, things, other things. But like single families and duplexes just don't really cash flow in my area. That makes sense. So I pulled two nuggets out of there. The first nugget is that we should go and find a bank or we should, we should possibly explore the option of an FHA loan just because, I mean, that's a lower down payment. And if it works for your real estate analysis, then by all means, go for it. And the second nugget I put out of there was that it sounds like these community banks, these smaller banks are a little bit more lenient and they can kind of work with you in your exact ideal situation. Whereas the larger banks, you know, they have their set criteria and it's so much easier for them to tell you no, rather than be like, oh, well, come in, come in and we'll, we'll kind of try to figure out your situation. And they can kind of, I mean, they can kind of play with, they can kind of play with it and, and kind of see where you stand and what they can do for you. 
So, you know, those are great nuggets to kind of pull. So we get our pre-approval. Now we have this, this document solidifying that we're serious. I mean, we're, we're a real estate investor. We're going out and, you know, it's one of the things that, like you said, the seller's agent is looking for this, this document. They want to make sure that, you know, you're, you're somebody serious that's not going to waste their time. So what was the next thing that you did? How did you go about finding properties that you can kind of, you know, kind of start analyzing and kind of start, you know, looking into? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, we did the regular thing, go down to some MLS provider. We use realtor.com primarily. There's like filters. I always filter multifamily, you know, residential multifamily. I have certain towns I'm looking for. Uh, like Garfield is where I bought my first four family. I like them because they have generally lower property taxes. Actually, it's state subsidized property taxes in Garfield. That's why it's lower. So I was looking there, you know, I had a filter for Garfield and I set up email alerts. So I was getting all these alerts, checking out these listings and then, you know, plugging all these listings that looked pretty good into my analysis uh, and just an Excel software, Excel file, you know, and I just plug in the numbers, you know, purchase price, ta- property taxes to see, and uh, like maybe the rent roll. And, and, you know, to estimate rent, sometimes I just use rentometer.com and that kind of gets me some numbers to see what like rent in that area is like for a two bedroom or three bedroom. And then, you know, just analyzing whether that cash flow met my criteria of a good deal. So um, I did that for a long time, but in my market, it's pretty competitive. So I was, uh, you know, we put some bids in, but again, we were getting outbid and outbid to the point where it wasn't a good deal anymore. But, you know, you, you, you just got to put those bids in at the price that works for you. And if you don't get the deal, you don't get the deal. Great. But, you know, you're getting educated on what are those good deals and you get to learn your market. So I, I kind of expanded to um, looking at different areas. So I started looking on Craigslist and that's eventually where I found this deal is on Craigslist. I was just looking for for sale by owner houses on Craigslist. That's amazing. That's amazing. And again, that's a nugget, but really quick before we get to that. So it sounds like whenever you're, you're kind of searching for a property and you find something that meets your criteria, how do you, so how do you determine if something meets your criteria? Because most properties that are listed are overpriced. So it doesn't meet your criteria prior. You know, when you're, when you plug in the, the numbers that they give you, does it meet your criteria then? Is that when you kind of dig a little bit further or do you work the numbers to meet your criteria and then make an offer at that point? Yeah. So, I mean, they have the listed purchase price, you know, right? So like this, this property we bought, this three family was listed at 375. At 375, actually the property did work. You know, my, I think my criteria was I want a thousand dollars a month in cash flow. That was my criteria after it was fully rented out. Yeah. So it worked at that, but no, I think, I think it worked. How often, how often do do you find properties that work at your criteria from there? Almost never. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. It's very, it's very hard to find, you know, yeah, because all those deals, you know, they go in an instant or, you know, people, people snatch those up. So it's, it's kind of usually hard to do that. But yeah, so you find the purchase price and then just use that to analyze. So, you know, you keep lowering the purchase price until you find that magic number, you know, like, okay, that's if I lower it from 375 down to 320. Oh, that's when I get that thousand dollars a month in, in uh, rental cash flow. Got it. Got it. And I want to point out really quick, Sonny, that the, you, as an investor, even though Sonny is tweaking the purchase price, you actually do not care about the purchase price. The reason he's tweaking the purchase price is because he wants to see how much he has to exert every single month. So you're literally taking the revenue that the property is generating minus the expenses. So that's expenses plus the mortgage and, and the interest. And you're taking that and you're trying to figure out if this property is going to cash flow. When you look at the purchase price, it's not like, oh my goodness, this purchase price is way too expensive. You 
don't care about the purchase price. You just need to work the purchase price down to see what you have to exert every single month in terms of expenses and how that's going to play in favor for you in terms of the revenue that's collected. And that's what Sonny does until he gets to a number. And then once you get to a number, Sonny, that works for you. So that means that in essence, you can make a, you can make an offer on every single property you come across. So how do you choose? (laughs) I mean, yeah, you don't want to find like a $500,000 house and offer 250 because that's the number that works for you, you know? So, you know, you, you get to know your area, you get to know what are good deals. And after you, you know, doing this process of analyzing and analyzing properties, you get to know, okay, that property that just came out, that was a good deal. Yeah. And then, and you know, you do the analysis, if it works for you, then yeah, yeah. It just, it takes time. You know, you got to analyze these properties and you got to put these offers in and it, it's work. You got to, you got to yeah. put in the, put in the work. I'd how say much that's cost. Sonny, how much does it cost to put in an offer? Nothing. You guys hear that? It costs nothing to put in an offer. And you know, most people, they stop at this point because that's where the fear kicks in. Oh my goodness, I have to put in an offer. So you, you've spent $0 to put in an offer. Zero. Yep. How much does it cost to get a property under contract? Nothing. There you, guys. So, so the fear that most people have is that I don't want to put in an offer. How, so, so let's just say you, you, put in, you put in an offer, which you paid $0 for, and you start your due diligence process. And you find out that something is wrong, which may be the biggest fear that holds people back from putting in an offer. Are there certain ways in which you can get out of that offer, Sonny? Yeah, I mean, especially, okay, if you are under contract, you're under attorney review, you can't always pull out, you know, within three days. Is that, is that the standard? Yep, yep, yep. And then the, the clauses that, that, you, that you put in the contract, you know, there, there are contingencies. There are such as, you know, like if there's something that hasn't been stated, you know, that you like maybe some major capex that, you know, somebody overlooked or maybe, you know, even a financing contingency. Like if you're not able to get financing, like people are like, you know, well, I don't have the money. Well, that may be a barrier, but I feel as though making an offer is the is the is the beginning of taking that first step and you know if you kind of just start back it's one of those things to where most people think about step eight step nine step ten and they allow those problems that may happen to prevent them from taking step one and i want to tell people that making an offer is not the end-all be-all it's not ironclad there are a lot of things that need to happen for that deal to close there's still there's still a due diligence phase, physical due diligence and a financial diligence phase. I mean, there are certain things that still need to go on through that transaction, through that process before it gets real. So Mm -hmm. I don't want people to be fearful of making offers because Sonny, how many offers would you say you've made in the past year before you found this property? Probably four or five. We didn't make that many offers, but yeah, we made four or five before finally coming to this one and we just kept getting outbid. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. So, so it sounds like, you know, you've made an offer on the, or it sounds like you found this property, you found this triplex and the numbers worked from the purchase point from inception, but of course you don't want to offer full price. So what did you offer and how did this, how did this conversation go? So you, you call the owner or you call the the seller's agent and kind of talk about that first conversation and some of the things that we maybe need to ask and some of the questions that you maybe need to filter out before you know that you want to make an offer on this property. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you go on the website, you can see the Craigslist. I have a uh, snippet, you know, a little screenshot of the, what the ad actually looked like. And there was no real numbers. on. I just said, you know, three family for sale in North Arlington. I know that town, you know, it's 10 minutes from New York city, $375,000. Yeah. It didn't really say much more after that. 
So, you know, I called the, the owner was selling this. So there's no realtor involved this time. So I wasn't using a realtor. He wasn't using a realtor. It was just for sale by owner. I contacted the owner and I was like, Hey, so, uh, so to do my analysis, I need some numbers. So I'm like, Hey, what are the taxes? He was like 13 K a year. And I was like, is it a legal three family property? And he's like, yes, legal three family. And I'm like, is it vacant or unoccupied? And he's like, two units are occupied. Um, and I asked for what the rents were for those. And he said, the third one's vacant. So these are standard questions I ask. I asked, are the utilities separate? Because then I have to factor in, you know, am I paying for utilities or is the tenants paying for utilities? And that all comes into my analysis as well. Uh, so rent amounts. I also ask about parking because I live in a pretty congested area of New Jersey. So parking is always an issue. And I asked him, why are you looking to sell? You know, why aren't you using a realtor? And uh, things like that. When then when can I come see this property? Because all the things he was telling me were good. After day one, after you did that, I mean, it sounds like you were super excited about this property. And, you know, the questions that you were asking, you were, you were yielding answers that boded well, that, you know, allowed you to want to move forward. So what was next? You had to set up an appointment? Yeah. So I think we decided to meet the next day or something. So we, we drove over and we met the owner and we looked at, we looked at the place, looked fine. I even, uh, just, uh, just to kind of get, make him aware, you know, that I'm just not some, some some newbie or something and that I, you know, I'm interested in this property and I'm likely going to close on this deal. I sent him um, a podcast. It might've, it might've been uh, this podcast actually. I forget what I sent them just to know that. Oh, so he knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's doing. But anyway, we met him and then, yeah. And uh, we, we pretty much just made the offer just verbally. We were like, Hey, I didn't think he was going to take it because at 375, it was a good deal. But I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm always like, you know, you always got to negotiate. It makes both parties feel good. You know, it's less, like if I would just say, hey, yeah, we'll take it at 375. He's like, oh, maybe I should have listed that at 450. He would have felt bad. And I would have, and you know, I, so I always like to negotiate. So I was like, hey, would you take 350? And he's like, you know, he thought about it. He's like, okay. <laughs> and then I kind of felt bad. I'm like, oh, I should offer 300. <laughs> but uh, anyway, he took it for 350. I was very excited because, you know, at 375, the numbers work. So at 350, it was even, you know, all gravy from there. So yeah, we made the offer. And then um, the next day, so day two, you know, we made the formal offer. We went to my, my lawyer, the first lawyer I used just um, on that first uh, four family property we purchased and just had uh, him draft up a letter of intent to purchase the property. I love it. love it. And Sonny, so would you say that was luck? Like, what would you call that? Would you say that was luck? Would you say that that was happenstance? Or would you say that because you were searching, you were actively looking, you were, you know, prowling day and night, and you came across this because of your diligence, because of your, your due diligence? Yeah, you know, anyone can access Craigslist. Anyone can access Realtor.com. It's not luck. It's I was doing it. And I was working harder than the next person who wanted to be doing it. So I got the deal. I love that. I love that. So you make an offer on this property, your offer gets accepted. And now it sounds like it's time for the real work to begin. So what's one of the first things that you should do right after that? Yeah. So, okay. So we went to our lawyer, he put in our formal offer submission or thing. And then we contacted the town of North Arlington, where we bought this house from. And we asked for, and we submitted an Oprah request. Oprah stands for Open Public Records Act. You can always go to any town hall and ask for this form. So you fill out this form and you ask certain questions. So we want to know, you know, any of the permits that were pulled out on this, on this place, whether the taxes were paid off, you know, or whether there was a backlog of taxes that needed to pay, any zoning code paperwork, making sure that this was indeed a legal three-family property, any liens on the property, and uh, just any closed permits on the uh, the property. So we've submitted this request to the town, to the town, 
Usually towns don't charge you anything for this request. They are legally obliged to take this request and give you the results of what, whatever you're asking. Sometimes they'll, pay you, they'll charge you five cents a page for the report, but you know, it's a very nominal thing and no one's ever charged me before. I love that. I love that. So you get this report back and it sounds like everything is, you know, everything is copacetic. Everything is fine. And is it time to write, write up the contract? Is it time to contact your lawyer and really you know, put the property under contract now? After that point, you know, everything looked good. So we put, we put it on the contract. It, t- it took a little while to, uh, back and forth. We contacted their lawyer too. And I think the lawyer was in Disneyland. So we had to wait a while. So it took us from putting in the offer 10 days to have that contract written up. Okay. So now that the property is under contract, what does that mean? Does that mean that nobody else can put an offer on that property? I mean, so before those, during those 10 days, could you still have lost that property? Yeah, I guess some other offer could have, you know, this was just written agree, or not verbal agreement between me and him. I offered 350, he accepted. But yeah, someone else could have, you know, seen the ad as well and been like, hey, I'll give you the full 375. And then, you know, that I guess it could have, they could have just taken that. So we, we, we had our lawyers sign this contract. We all signed the contract as well. And now it was, it was on us, you know, it was under contract. So we had to really analyze the property now to see if we actually did want this thing, whether there was, any, uh, you know, insurmountable uh, problems with it that we didn't want to inherit. I love that. So it sounds like, and I talk about the importance often of building a team and you don't have a very large team, but you've built a formidable team. And it sounds like your lawyer is a very, very important part of that team. Talk about really quick, what part your lawyer plays and how to maybe find a lawyer for somebody who's looking to kind of get started and they, they don't need a broker, they don't need an agent, but they do want to have, you know, an attorney at hand to do, be able to draw up these contracts. Yeah, I think well, the, the lawyer was especially important in this case because we didn't have any realtors involved, any realtors involved to kind of help us sign forms and things like that. But yeah, in this case, I, I wouldn't say my lawyer is spectacular for any, any means. He's just a regular lawyer. I had a friend just recommend him and we used him for our first house. But, he, you know, he, know, he knows the process. It's not, it's not complicated. And, you know, we just needed, we needed legal documents to secure this contract that we want to purchase this house and put it on the contract for us. So it's that easy, Sonny? Yeah, it's not a, it wasn't a big deal. I just emailed him. We never even met. I love it. And I, I just want to clear this up for the listeners. So people think that, you know, buying real estate is this big, just, just, or, I mean, of course it's a big ordeal, but they, they believe it's this, it's this hard ordeal in which lots of people are involved, lots, lots of things, or there's a lot of moving parts. And, you know, it sounds like you found a property on Craigslist. You like the property. You contacted the owner. You asked him a few questions, pertinent questions. You did some research as soon as, I mean, first, I mean, first you went to the property, you, you, you bought the property, you met the owner, and then you, you went back, you did some research, you made an offer, and now the property is under contract. So it's that simple. How much have you spent so far? Uh, I don't know, two, three hours, something like that. And, and what about in dollars? How much have you spent? Nothing. Okay. So- Although, actually, no, we did, we did put down a $2,000 deposit. To the okay. well, this is a little. I think after. Yeah, that, that, that's yeah, this, sorry. This is after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, how much have you spent so far? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. So the property is under contract. What is next? What do we? What are we starting? Are we starting the the due diligence phase? And I think we've kind of already started that by do by going to get the elsers. But are we starting the, the due diligence phase now that the property is under contract? And if so, what does that entail? 
Yeah. So, yeah. So we went on the contract and I immediately scheduled a home inspection. So I actually hired a home inspector and this one, I think I just found on yelp.com. I just, cause I didn't have a good experience with my first home inspector. I guess he was fine. He was the cheapest. So I used him this time. I wanted a little more thorough home inspector. So I just went on Yelp, found the, found the good rated one. And uh, he came out to the property and did a really thorough, I, I tagged along with him and I, and I recommend, you know, you tag along your, your home inspector throughout well, however long it is a two, one to two, one to three hour inspection and just like watch, watch what he's looking for and really learn it. Cause I feel like, you know, learning what they look for kind of helps you a- analyze properties when you go to visit them for the first time as well. So that was really good. And uh, he, he gave us a detailed report. Love that. And did anything kind of come back suspicious? Did, 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 was there any reason for you to kind of renegotiate or did it come back clean? It was pretty clean. Uh, everything that, you know, was very visible. Some things he pointed out was he thought, he said there could be a mold-like growth in the attic, um, some outdated fuse boxes, but yeah, they really weren't of concern to us. So at this point, it sounds like it's now time to, you know, you've done, you've done, you've done some physical due diligence and you're, gonna, you're still going to do some more due diligence across this process. But let's maybe take a step back and talk about your end of the, you know, your end of the spectrum and what you need to close on the property. Because as much as you're checking out the property and you're making sure that the seller has, you know, kind of disclosed everything that needs to be disclosed, you know, you also have to start getting together what it is that you need. And maybe that's funds for the, for the deal. Maybe that's partners, whatever that is. So what do you start? to do on your end to make sure that you're able to close on the property yeah so we you know we had to put some money down on this property i think i initially said 10 percent down we actually put 20 percent down on this deal so 20 percent down on a three hundred fifty thousand dollar purchase price you know is 70 70 70, yeah seventy thousand dollars so we needed seventy thousand dollars and it's not like i have that sitting right in the bank. I have a lot of IRAs I invest in heavily and things like that, but I didn't want to pull from my IRAs. So what we did was a HELOC, a home equity line of credit. So we already had that four family property, our primary residence. We did a home equity line of credit from that. So this is like a second mortgage we put on our house. And that, that I started uh, filing for a little bit, like as, I think even before, was it before? No, I think as soon as I put the offer in on this property and we started going on the contract, I put in this uh, HELOC in in. I applied for this HELOC and this HELOC was going to give me $61,000 in a line of credit to use. So a line of credit to borrow from against my primary residence. And that money I, I was going to use to put it towards my down payment for the house. Got it. Got it. So, so that, that's pretty much how you covered your down payment. So let's talk to maybe a newbie investor and let's maybe think back to your, to your first deal, your fourplex. You know, I guess, how would you structure your first deal if you didn't have a HELOC or how would you structure any deal? Is it something that you just kind of pull funds from your 401k? Is this, is this a situation in which you may take advantage of an FHA loan just to have a really small down payment? Just give some advice. I'm not saying, you know, there's one ironclad way to go about doing things, but maybe not everybody's not privy to having a HELOC. What, what, are, what are some other options they can kind of explore for that down payment? Because that, that's another hangup that people kind of go through. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, me and my wife were really frugal people. I've never mentioned that before. So we, that first house we bought for $430,000, we put 10% down. So that's $43,000 we had to come up with $43,000. We were, you know, we, we really saved the money. So we actually just saved it. You know, we had about a hundred thousand dollars saved by the time we purchased that house. I was, I was, it was back 2015. She was working as an elementary school teacher, me as an engineer. And we just, you know, we, we were really frugal. We brought our own lunch to work. We didn't eat out. 
we cut our own hair. <laughs> we did all the frugal things and we're able to really save that money. But if you don't have that, you know, we did that so there'd be less risk on us. You know, we put the cash down. Some people borrow money from people and, you know, you could borrow it from a private lender who might charge you like a 10% interest. I didn't really want all those fees and interest fees and things like that. That's why I did the hard work of saving that money. Some people take out loans from their credit cards and things like that, or like cash out from their credit cards, which is not a good idea, but some people do that. I don't know. Do you have any other recommendations? Yeah. Yeah. So it's one of the easiest things to do, you know how there, I mean, there are many people who invest in their company, their company compensation, 401k plan and other things like that. And there are many people who put their money in the bank. And we talk about the vast majority of us not having a proper vehicle to put our money in. I mean, there are tons of people, Americans every day who, you know, are earning a 0.0025% interest rate on the money that they have in the bank. And they're probably losing money every year just because of inflation. And it's one of those things where there, there are millions, if not billions. I mean, there's 7 billion people in this world and 300 million Americans in this world. And there's so many people who have these money problems that are very similar to ours. And if you offered somebody the opportunity to make a 10% return, a 15% return, a 20, you know, anything really at this point, a return on their investment, and you would be a real estate investor and they would provide the money. I mean, you could have a a partnership and with, you know, you guys go 50-50, you put up 20,000, they put up 20,000. And, you know, whether they're a long-term partner or a short-term partner, you pay them out. But there are so many people out here who are struggling in the sense that they don't have opportunity or access to some of these things. And if you find a reputable partner or somebody who's willing to you know, help you front that money, I mean, not only have you just built a new relationship, built a new partnership, helped, you know, helped out another family that's looking to grow wealth, but you may have a long-term partner in which he, may be, he or she may be able to fund your deals for deals to come. So when people say they don't have the money, you know, it's, it's one thing to believe that money is going to be what's going to stop you. It's another thing to say that I'm going to get this deal done at all costs if it's a good deal. And there are many ways around not having the money. And that's just one. You named a few as well. There are other ways to kind of get into these properties. There are things like lease options, master leases. I mean, the list goes on. I want the listeners to know that there are options. And just because you don't physically have the money doesn't mean you cannot become a real estate investor. You have to make the decision that you're going to get this deal done at all costs. And it sounds like, you know, what you got, what you guys did, again, you guys didn't start out with the money, but you guys saved and saved and saved. And you guys eventually had the money that you guys needed to close on the property. And that's another option. So I love that you're able to kind of highlight that. So let's move on down this path. Let's move on down this journey. Now, you know where your financing is coming from as far as your down payment. You've always known where your financing is coming from, from, from the bank's point of view. So that's, that, that's clear. You've gotten your inspector to come out and things came back, you know, they came back copacetic. So now we're looking at maybe the appraisal report. So let's schedule the appraisal. Let's uh, have them come out and make sure that the, act, the property actually appraises. So did your property appraise? Yeah, it did. Yeah, I think it only appraised, I think it only appraised for like 400,000 or something only? like that. Oh, well, I mean, I guess it was over what we were buying it for. <laughs> so maybe talk about what would have happened if it appraised for, let's say, 300000 Yeah. So I guess if it appraised for So again, like right after the home inspection, we started our mortgage application, I believe. Yeah. So the mortgage application and the bank actually appraised the property. So they, they have their own appraiser they like. So we scheduled an appointment time with them. They came to the property. 
and appraise it. If it had appraised for below, then we probably wouldn't be, have been able to get our mortgage because the, the bank isn't going to want to give you, you know, a $300,000 loan for a property that's only worth two fifty. Because you know that's just they're they're losing right from the start, or you're losing right from the start, and they don't want to they don't want to fund a bad deal. Yeah, yeah. But since it appraised at four hundred thousand, does that create more equity for you? How does that work? Yeah. So that okay. Blah, 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 blah. Sorry, I was trying to. I have the appraisal report actually on this blog post. I was looking for it, but anyway. So how does that work? Okay. So if it appraises for more than what you're buying it for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just your equity position is much better. So, like I said, we were putting twenty percent down on this property, but you know, if it if we were, you know, and we were buying for three fifty, but if it pays for four fifty, we immediately have a hundred thousand dollars more in equity in this property, essentially, because um, it's worth much more than we're buying it for. And later, you know, we could do like a cash out refinance. Even I don't can you, you can't do that on the first mortgage, right? You can't just cash out refinance. It wouldn't be a refi, but you can just cash out. But anyway, you could later do a cash out refinance and take out some of that initial money. Yep, yep, exactly, exactly. So the higher the appraisal, the better it is for you. And, you know, the seller just might be lost out. I don't know. <laughs> so you get the appraisal done and it appraises. So that's a great thing. And now it's time. I mean, you've done, you've done your fiscal due diligence. You've gotten your appraisal done. You figured out your, your whole financing as far as your end of the financing. What's next? What, do you, what, do you, what are you looking to do next? Are you looking to do a financial due diligence? Are you looking to get, uh, get your insurance? What, what's next on the list? Yeah, so we were waiting for the approval from the uh, bank that we were approved to close, and we finally got that. Then we got our home property insurance. We used Liberty Mutual. That's who we had our first property with. And then, yeah, that was that was pretty much it. Okay, so now you have you're moving right along. And you're getting ready to close on this property, and it doesn't sound like this property is in rent ready condition. It sounds like there there's some things that need to be addressed. So I'm looking at your article, and it looks like you hired, or you got on again. You got on one of these social media networks, and you said, "Hey, I'm looking for some interns, some laborers. Uh, there's some work to do." And you kind of went about the process of doing the rehab yourself. Is that something that you recommend that that the listeners should do? It depends. It depends. Like, like I have a very close knit community, uh, church community. So we have our own Facebook group within our local church. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of college kids there. So I, I feel like it's a, a win win, you know, they learn a skill, we get cheap labor. And uh, my wife is stay at home. So she was actually acting as general contractor commanding these student laborers from our church community to kind of help paint the house, fix things up and uh, do things like that. All in all, it was kind of stressful. She had two kids in tow and things like that. So maybe, I don't know. They, they definitely really liked it. The kids, they really, one of them actually is like uh, working for a contractor now because he liked it so much. But anyway, I don't know. It's up to you, your comfort zone. Maybe just hire a contractor to do it all. But if we were to do it again, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what we would do. Got it. Okay. Okay. So as you, as you move towards the, as you move towards closing, are these things that you're doing like before closing so that the day you close, you guys are in there getting ready to, you guys are in there working on the property or are these things that you started doing after closing and it maybe took a little bit longer for you guys to get the, get the uh, units rent ready? Yeah, no, we did, we were trying to prepare as much as possible before closing because, you know, as soon as you close, especially if the property is vacant, you want to try to minimize those holding costs as much as possible. So holding costs are, you know, you're holding the property 
you still have to pay the mortgage, even if it's not, uh, you know, vacant, you still have to pay the property taxes. And you know, when you're paying the mortgage and the property, property taxes on top of rehab expenses, you want to try to limit the amount of time as much as possible, because those really add up together. And if there's no rent coming in, it's, it can be quite painful. So, you know, we knew that going forward. So we want to get optimized as much as possible to really get this place turned around and uh, rent ready. I love that. I love that. So we're approaching closing and actually we're at, you know, the closing day. And yeah. It's the big day. It's finally here. And so, so the only document we forgot was title insurance. We needed that title commitment, title insurance. Oh, yep, but, yep, yep. And then now we're at closing day. Yep. Okay. So we're at closing. What are some of the feelings? What are the, some of the emotions that you're going through? Is it, are, is it, are you excited? Are you scared? Are you, are you eager? Talk about your emotional state at this time. I don't know. It just, uh, <laughs> just another day. Sign another document. <laughs> I love it. Where does the closing take place and how kind of, how does that process go? Is there anything that, that kind of sticks out in your mind that the listeners should maybe know about closing? Yeah. Our closing happened to take place at my lawyer's office. I don't, think it had to for any reason. The owners didn't actually even show up. They uh, just had their attorney show up and their attorney and my attorney and ourselves, we just signed the docs. Yeah. And my lender was there as well. So the lender was there to sign the mortgage stuff and present the check to the, I guess the lawyer, the for sale check to pay the lawyer, to pay the lawyer, to pay the new, to pay the old owners, uh, the sellers. So as far as the tenants in the property, what, what's your interaction with them before closing? And is there, is there a certain communication that goes out the day of closing that tell them that you're the new owner? How does that interaction work? Yeah. So I guess uh, when we went through the properties, you know, two of the, two of the three units were occupied. So when we went through the properties for the home inspection and the initial look, we got to talk to them, meet them. And yeah, so we met with them. And then we had an estoppel agreement signed. This is a document that you should have uh, signed. The estoppel agreement, I had talked about it earlier in the blog uh, blog post. I think it just verifies, you know, lease end dates. Do they have a lease? How much is their rent? And it just kind of verifies all those uh, kind of rules from, from the old owner to you because you're inheriting the tenants. If there was a lease in place, they give you the lease too. And uh, you just want to know like the lease end dates and how much in rent they're paying you and whatever um, security deposit they also have. Maybe that's the main, main issue. And also at, at the, at closing, they gave us security deposit checks. Got it. Got it. Yep. Yep. And they, okay. So, and then you just had to possibly convert the, the, the tenants to pay on your system, which you use the same system I use. I think I got my system from you, uh, which is cozy.co. And Cozy's amazing. A lot of people use other things. I think the last guest I interviewed, he uses Buildium. But so that was pretty much it. So now you've closed on this property. You are a brand new property owner of of an amazing triplex. And now what? The real work begins, right? Yep. The real work begins. So yeah, we use Cozy. So we actually sent an introductory letter to all our tenants. We mailed it to them, just kind of giving them our contact information should they need to contact us. And yes, notifying them that we use this free online rental payment system called Cozy. So just pay us online at the first of every month. We told them, you know, uh, in New Jersey, you had to tell them where you're keeping the security deposit. So we told them keeping it at PNC Bank in Garfield, New Jersey. And the lease terms, you know, you have a lease that expires this date and blah, blah, blah. We plan to honor that lease. And uh, then we gave them a tenant information form to fill out for us. So we had their information, their contact details, their emails, phone numbers, and things like that. And just something to sign saying that, yes, my lease end date is that. And that's the terms of my lease. 
Yeah. So you're not you're not drawing up a new lease uh, under your name. You're just kind of you're kind of uh, upholding the the old lease, and they're ad- adhering to that the, those lease terms. Correct. Correct. Yep. 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 Okay. So that's the same thing I did. So let's talk about, and we're we're gonna quickly talk about just the whole the the remodeling, the rehab of the unit, because that's a that's a, another scary part. When you know listeners are listening, they're like, "Man, I have to you know I have no experience in real estate, and I just bought this property, and now I have to you know do some some renovations and some rehabbing." Do you have any tips and advice for listeners to maybe predict rehab costs and maybe go about this process in a systematic way? Tips. I don't know. I feel like just just. Looking around, I mean, I guess to me, it seems kind of natural now to kind of just analyze what needs to be fixing. I don't know. We really like to make our units nice, you know, units that we ourselves would like to live in. We do live in one of the units. So anyway, we like to make it nice. So just pretty much as I just look at it, look at things and see like, like, okay, those cabinets just got to go. They're 30 years old. We're going to replace these cabinets these countertops we're going to put some nice stone countertops in nicer appliances i like to go higher end and attract better tenants you know better quality tenants who are going to take care of my place and provide me with good rents so um, i like to kind of go above and beyond with our rehabs putting usually used appliances but really good high-end appliances and also our cabinets we always seem to buy used for some reason we bought like four kitchen sets used off craigslist at this point and just installed good high quality used cabinets in these places and then um you know we like to put a fresh coat of paint on all the units i don't know maybe you have some better tips Oh, no, I think that's perfect. And I, I, one other thing I kind of wanted to touch on really quick that I thought to touch on with the tenant. So what what, what was your, what was your, and this kind of goes in, in, in play with the rehab, what was your idea for what rents could possibly be as opposed to what, what rents were at the time? And it sounds like you put in high end, you know, you put in, you did a high end rehab almost to increase rent. So maybe talk about, you know, cause you, you mentioned the high end rehab, but we want to talk about the reason behind that. And I believe it was to increase rent. So maybe talk about your, your plan on the triplex and how you plan to increase rents, maybe get some new tenants in there and just talk about the overall financial plan of, of the, of the triplex and what you planned on doing with it. So like I said, we had uh, leases in place for two of the units and two, two people were living there. We probably would have been okay with keeping them, but we decided, we told them, you know, we gave them uh, six months in, we gave them a lot of notice in advance that, you know, we're planning to not renew their lease. They were smokers. So that was one thing, but also we were owner occupying, we had an owner occupant mortgage. So our mortgage says we're going to live in this property. So we have to live in one of the units. So that's why it was another reason that we need to kick out the tenants. So we gave them a good like six months notice almost. We didn't want to kick them out right away because already one unit was vacant. So our, our thrust was to fix that vacant unit, get it ready, get it rented, and then start you know working on the other units as the tenants leave. So that, that was our strategy there just to minimize those holding costs again as much as possible because you know it, it we didn't want to focus on uh, renovating three units all at once. And we also wanted to give the tenants time to, you know, they had been living there, find a new place. Yeah. So, that, so this was, was that the question? Sorry. No, I'm going to ask the question again now. So this was in, this was in August of 2017. Yeah. Now we're in May of 2018. And what has transpired and what, I mean, we're going to talk about what you still need to work on as well, but what has transpired? What are rents today or what, or what okay. can rents be? And we'll talk about what they were back then. Sure. So uh, rents today are like, uh, so we're still working on that third unit actually, because um, 
we gave him six, one of the tenants six months to move out. So he just moved out a month ago. But so one of the, the unit two that we fixed up, it was renting at 1200. We're now renting at a 1500 a month. So that's a oh, $300 wow. gain. It's a huge gain, you know, 12, oh, wow. from 1200 to 1500. And then the top unit was being rented at 900. We're now renting it at 1200. So, you know, big, massive gains, like, you know, $300 a month adds up to $3,600 a year, you know, so it's a significant, significant gain. Yeah. How confident were you in that rent bump when you initially did it? I was, I was very confident. You know, I, I kind of know the area, you know, we have a rental in a pretty similar area and, you know, there's a high demand for rents. And I was also, you know, I checked out other rentals in the area, just looked at hoppads.com, looked at whatever else was for rent on Craigslist for rent. So like competing units and what they were likely getting or what they were advertising they wanted there for their rent. So I had a good idea of what I could possibly get for these properties. I love that. I love that. Man, you found a, a steal of a deal, Sonny. It's one of those things where not only did you did you find a deal that was already uh, valued under market, but I mean, the rents were drastically, I wouldn't even say drastically under market because you had you had performed, you know, your rehab and you had you had possibly got the units up to, you know, up to par as far as that, as far as the area. So you've done some major work to kind of get that done. How much would you say you spent on uh, rehab total? So we're still kind of going through it, but we spent a decent amount. Uh, let's see. I would say probably around 35,000, something like that. And was that, was that originally, was that, was some of that factored into your, your budget or have you went over budget? Are you under budget? What does that look like? I'd say we are a little bit over because I think we were thinking 35,000 for everything, but we still have to put probably put around, around like 7K into that first unit that we're fixing up. So I'd say we're, we're probably around, yeah, around seven to 10K over budget. Okay. Okay. And that happens. I mean, this is, this is real life. Like as much as we've talked about how amazing everything has happened for you, like this is, you're also sharing that, I mean, not everything goes as planned. You know, there are hiccups and I mean, although they're not major hiccups, but I just want people to know that, you know, Sunny's not perfect. Although it seems like you, <laughs> you're, you're pretty close to perfect. I mean, but you still, of course you still, you still have your budget that, that that's a little bit over, but that's okay. It sounds like the numbers, you know, allow for some, some, some leadway. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, the better deal you can get, you know, the the more yeah, the more leeway you can you'll get uh, later on. Sonny, this is this has been fascinating. This has been amazing. We've walked through this deal from beginning to end, and now you have a total of seven units. You have two properties that are grossing you one hundred thousand dollars a year. How yep. do you feel? This is amazing. I mean, how, what, what's next for you? Are you still looking for property? Are you kind of just chilling out now? Like, like <laughs> what's on the horizon? Are you, are you focused solely on this triplex and getting it up to market? Or are you still kind of out there looking? So we're pretty focused on the triplex, but you know, we just came back from a trip to Puerto Rico last week. The tr- it was all pleasure, really, almost. I should have planned it as a real estate trip, but I didn't really plan it as a real estate trip, so I couldn't expense it. But I did, I did uh, contact some folks. I went to the Bigger Pockets forum and just searched for, you know, Puerto Rico real estate, just because I was interested. You know, I, I've heard, you know, Puerto Rico's, uh, you know, Puerto Rico's pretty down at this point, the housing market because of Hurricane Maria and things like that. So I wanted to kind of research the, research the market and see if there was any opportunities there. And, you know, we were vacationing there anyway. So I was like, hey, let me, let me kind of look at the real estate market. So we met with some real estate investors there, talked with them. And so I don't know, we're, we're kind of open to things. And, but also at the same token, yeah, these two properties, I feel like 
you know, it's, it's crazy, you know, that they bring in a hundred thousand dollars in rent, just two properties, two house hacks can do that. And like I said earlier on the onset of the show, we can retire from just these two properties alone. We just focus on paying down these uh, mortgages and we can retire on these two properties. Also, at the same token, we have two kids now. We have a three-year-old and a one-year-old. So it's a lot of work, you know, uh, going to these properties, fixing them up while maintaining these two kids. And so at this point, I'm not sure. Do, I, do we kill, keep building the real estate empire or do we pay down and live off the, the revenue? Because like I said, you know, that's more than enough for us to live comfortably off of. So we, we, we go back and forth. We like looking at houses. So my wife still looks and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, not sure at this point. <laughs> Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite before the millions book? Favorite. Okay. I just finished an awesome. Okay. But this isn't business related. Is that okay? That's fine. I just finished the way of Kings by uh, Brandon Sanderson. He's a fantasy novelist, but um, it's a, it's a 45 hour audio book. I only listen to audiobooks books uh, nowadays because I have a 45 minute commute to work and 45 minutes back. So it's an hour and a half of listening I get to do. But anyway, that was just an amazing fantasy novel that I really enjoyed and a lot of good morals and values there and good, good rules. Hours. Yeah. And it took eight hours for anything to happen, but, uh, <laughs> Oh but I, it was a good recommendation from a good friend of mine. So I stuck it out for those eight hours and the rest of the book was amazing. So That's longer than the, no, it may not be. I was going to say that's longer than The Creature from Jekyll Island. <laughs> <laughs> I've never read that one. You've never read that one? You have to. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. Favorite lifestyle design app. Okay, so a good one that we kind of like to use is ScanBot. I don't know. I'm sure there's others that do a similar thing, but you know, it just it's just an app, and it just takes a photo. Uh, we use it to take photos of receipts. So we just uh, you know, right when we have to check out at Home Depot, we just take a picture. It instantly uh, syncs up with our Google Drive account, and I have it set up to a Google Drive folder, and I have it instantly save it as a PDF and tag it with the date. Uh, the PDF file with the date and time of purchase and also the location of purchase. And what I do is with all those receipts that are now on Google Drive, I have a virtual assistant, one of, another church member, <laughs> church student employee who goes through those PDFs and then puts it into an Excel breakout for me so that I can later, you know, at the end of the year, expense all my expenses. And, uh, yeah, and I also track my mileage that way because the location is on the PDF. So like if I went to Passaic, New Jersey, I know Passaic, New Jersey is three miles from my house. So I calculate my miles and deduct that way as well. So, I love that. I love that. That app will be definitely be in the show notes and I'll have to check that out myself. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? So our lifestyle is all about trying to gain as much freedom as possible. You know, I do, I do work a nine to five, but I do love what I do. And, and I felt, I feel like if I really needed to, and if I stopped enjoying what I did, I could just walk away from it and, you know, build my path towards freedom. I have enough of these passive income streams. I feel like that I could just build it up more and invest more into it and really get things going. And uh, to me, you know, I, I just love, you know, the ownership I have over my own life and being able to make as many choices as I want, being able to go on the all these amazing trips that we constantly go on uh, through travel hacking and things like that. You know, we just spent two awesome weeks in Puerto Rico. And yeah, just, yeah, just traveling the world and traveling the world with my family and just raising my family the way we both want to, my wife and I want to. And uh, 
yeah, life's amazing. Life is awesome. And we're just really blessed to be living the life we live. I love it. Love it so much. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Yeah, so I guess I guess sacrifices are, you know, I still drive a little Toyota Yaris with roll-up windows and my, my wife drives a little Honda Fit, you know, so but to me, I'm not I'm not about the flashy cars. I don't I don't want to I'm about freedom. I don't want to be enslaved to a car loan, you know. I so I am buying my freedom with frugal by living a frugal lifestyle you know i'm not racking up that credit card debt being enslaved to a credit card business you know and things like that so i'm i'm choosing not to buy these luxury items so that i can instead buy my freedom yes i love it i love it who was essential to your growth before the millions and why so i guess like uh growing up you know i had awesome parents they didn't make a lot of money, but because they didn't make a lot of money, they taught me this frugal lifestyle to live. And yeah, also just like, you know, what's really important in life is those relationships that this relationship I've developed, my wife, this amazing relationship that we completely trust each other, you know, and we work well together. And now we're creating this beautiful family together and how, how essential that is and uh, how even more amazing it is now that, you know, we're creating this awesome business together and this also awesome lifestyle of freedom. So yeah, I guess my parents definitely influenced that and I love the model they had of a harmonious relationship that I really modeled my relationship after. I love it. Last but not least, why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? Yeah, I mean, I think like you said kind of early on, you know, we, we just constantly put these roadblocks because we're, fe- we're, we're fearful, but really it's just, you just gotta take that action, take the action that you know no one else is taking and you know we all have the ability to do we just we just got it we just got to motivate ourselves to really do it you know like so many people spend so much time watching tvs i don't know what the average is like five hours a day is the average time people spend watching we don't even own a tv you know we didn't want to indoctrinate our kids into that habit you know we instead dedicate our times to these fruitful activities that make us really enjoy and uh, enjoy life and are passionate about and just build you know build these build our dreams take action take action that was the main key point there (laughs) part two a year later sunny burns sunny if the listeners want to learn a little bit more about you get to know you a little bit better maybe ask you a question or two where can they find you where can i find some of your resources yeah, just go to famvestor.com. Again, family investor, famvestor.com. I have my contact info there. You can just email me. I'll get back to you pretty soon. And yeah, that's where I put my blog posts. I have things on travel hacking, Roth IRAs, investing, real estate investing, all sorts of things. I have a nifty little spreadsheet where you can kind of calculate you know, your savings rate, your net income, and uh, your net worth and things like that. So I love that. Sunny, this is your passion. This is where your passion lies. This is, I mean, you love to help other people achieve this freedom. And I I see it, I hear it, I feel it. It's one of those things to where it's powerful. And, you know, we need more people like you in this space. So again, I thank you for everything that you've done. I thank you for all that you do, the inspiration that you provide for myself and for the listeners. It's been amazing. And man, part three coming up in about a year, right? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. I'll be the first, third time guest on the Before the Millions podcast. Let's get it. Well, Sunny, this has been an, an amazing episode. And it's one of those, again, it's one of those to where you've literally walked down your path, episode one, a 
And now, I don't know what episode this is gonna be. It's probably gonna be like episode 60, but we're gonna walk down the path to purchase. And it's been simply phenomenal. Again, Sonny, thank you so much for everything you do and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, see you, Derry. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a good fit to work with the Before the Millions team, here's what I want you to do next. Head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. That's beforethemillions.com slash call and book an appointment to speak with our team. We'll get on the phone with you for about 45 minutes and we'll get you crystal clear on three things. Number one, what is your cash flow goal? How much are you looking to make every month? Number two, your personalized investing strategy. And number three, the best way to get started using cash flowing rental real estate. Remember, starting and scaling your real estate investments and business doesn't happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. We've helped clients all over the world start and scale their investing efforts to six figures and beyond while enjoying life and making the world a better place. To find out if we can help you do the same, head over to beforethemillions.com forward slash call. I'm Dorel Lallier, and let's talk soon.